from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, five-time CEO, entrepreneur, author, and executive leadership coach, Margaret Heffernan. I think there are lots and lots of reasons that we think about the future incorrectly. One is we have this mantra that history repeats itself, yeah. and it really doesn't. What we do when we look at history is we are drawn to the similarities, but it's actually the differences that matter. Ideas about how the tools we use to predict the future often point leaders and organizations in the wrong direction. Margaret Heffernan is one of the smartest people in the world of business. Over the years, I've interviewed Margaret several times about her insights on collaboration, consensus building, and decision making. She's known as the CEO Whisperer because of the work she's done coaching dozens and dozens of high-level leaders. Margaret herself is a former CEO. She ran a tech company back in the 1990s. But she's also the author of several best-selling books on best practices. And what makes her work so interesting is that what she writes is usually counterintuitive. For example, in her latest book, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, Margaret challenges the conventional wisdom around data. Most big companies are increasingly relying on data and metrics to make big decisions and predict future trends. The global market for big data and analytics is now worth north of $200 billion and growing fast. But as we'll hear, Margaret believes that there's an over-reliance on data and the results could be disastrous. Her book builds on some of the themes from her 2011 bestseller, Willful Blindness. That book explored how individuals and organizations make terrible decisions despite clear evidence and facts that warn against those decisions. And so when I invited Margaret to come onto the show recently, we decided to kick it off with a story she tells about a doctor named Alice Stewart. So Alice Stewart was a physician who worked uh, in the UK during and after the Second World War. And she was quite unusual, obviously, because she was female. And she was one of the very early epidemiologists, so really interested in the study of patterns in disease. And really, like any scientist, you know, she wanted to find a hard problem and then solve it. And the problem she chose was the rise of cancer in children. So she did a survey, you know, this is the days of carbon copies, and uh, crunched the data and discovered that by a rate of three to one, the kids who were dying of cancer had mothers who had been x-rayed when pregnant. Hmm. And this was a startlingly clear discovery. She rushed her data into print. Everybody got very excited. I mean, it was clear. The evidence seemed clear that it was the x-rays, the exposure to x-rays was connected to the cancer. Exactly. And so it seemed likely that physicians would stop x-raying yeah. women when they were pregnant. And yet it was 25 years before the American Medical Association decided that this was a bad idea. Wow. So the first explanation people rapidly reached for is, well, maybe they just ignored her because she was female. But that doesn't really work because almost, almost immediately after her 
article was published. A researcher at the Harvard School of Public Health instigated a very similar but much bigger study. His uh, findings were almost identical. So you can't really say, oh, it's just because she was female. So Mm. it's a really beautiful example of willful blindness because you have pretty clear data and it's in front of people who have the capacity to understand it. And yet nothing happens for a long time. And you still have, during those 25 years, children dying of cancer. So the question, of course, that I asked myself was, well, what the heck is going on here? Right. And there are several conclusions I came to. One was you had a scientific establishment that was really quite enchanted by this new technology of the X-ray. Yeah. Doctors started buying X-ray machines to put into their offices, and it's a sort of special attraction for their patients. So there was certainly a reluctance to turn their back on what clearly was a very important technological breakthrough. But I think the bigger, deeper reason is that at the time, there was a dominant theory of disease, which was called threshold theory. And threshold theory basically held that everything is fundamentally safe up to a point. Hmm. And only after that has been crossed is the thing dangerous. And essentially what the research showed was actually there was no safe level of radiation exposure for a fetus. Hmm. But asked to choose between the theory and the data, the scientific establishment clung to the theory for 25 years. And what I think is so important about this story is a theory marginalizes and trivializes or blinds you to whatever doesn't fit. And therefore, there are things which you probably should pay attention to like Alice Stewart's data, which didn't fit the theory, which you really have to pay attention to. You really have to pay attention to disconfirming data. It's remarkable because one of the examples I remember from from the story of Alice Stewart was a guy named George Neal. He was like her statistician that she hired to, to, to basically try to counter the data she was finding more or less, right? Yeah, I mean, she asked him, you know, can you crunch the numbers in a way that comes up with a different explanation? And she asked that because she knew that if he couldn't, she was on solid ground. You know, I think it's a really exceptional and brilliant thing to have people in your organization or or in your life who will constantly be asking, what's the counter argument? What's the counter explanation? And, you know, what I would say when it comes to things like, you know, big bubbles in the financial world or, you know, kind of bubbles and hype around, oh, I don't know whether it's Bitcoin or WeWork or Theranos or any of those. Mm. You know, if you really can't find a counter argument, then somebody's not trying because there's always something. Yeah. I mean, the the fact that Alice Stewart, you know, she was a, a scientist and a researcher, but her story really does apply to the business world because she did something remarkable, which all of us know, Margaret, and you've written about this. <laughs> we know it's the right thing to do. Every single leader and CEO you have worked with knows that the right thing to do is to gather people around them who will challenge them and who will question them. Yeah. And the reality is very few people actually do that. Because it's more comfortable to be surrounded by people who celebrate your genius. Well, I think that's true. But I also think it's actually harder to get that argument than most people 
realize. <laughs> so I know lots of leaders in various capacities who will say, you know, I'll never shoot the messenger. I want argument. I want debate. And they face two problems. Uh, one is, generally speaking, people don't believe them. They think, yeah, 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 everybody's always saying that. But the other thing is that it's actually quite hard to find people who are good at developing and presenting that challenge. Yeah. There's a great deal in our educational system that fundamentally says, look, here's a question. There's one answer that's right. And the people who get that answer are smart and everybody else is stupid. So our education system trains people to look for one right answer, not a range of answers, but one right answer. And generally in hierarchies, most people quickly absorb the message. The way I get ahead is to please the person above me, my yeah. boss. And this goes on, you know, from job after job after job until you're right near the top. Let's say you're in the executive committee or the senior leadership team. But now you're in a position where actually what's needed is something completely different. Yeah. And so the question is, where along the way would you learn that? And it's very hard in an organization where there's such a driving impulse to succeed by doing what other people want you to do, to find the people who will challenge you as much as you say that's what you want. Yeah. Hard to find. I mean, imagine working for somebody like Elon Musk, right, who yeah. is a, a brilliant thinker and innovator, but I can't imagine that it's easy to challenge him. I mean, there are stories about how he has fired people on the spot. Yeah, and it's, um, you know, it's, why, it's one of the reasons why bullying is such an issue, not just because it's a vicious thing to do, but because it's specifically counterproductive. Hmm. You'd only have to bully one person in public for everyone else to get the message, just do what he wants or do what she wants. And that's lethal for a leader. Nobody's going to say, hang on a second, you really shouldn't do that because, or are you sure, or I, there's something you don't know. And, of course, the whole premise of, of organizational life is that groups of people collectively can see more and come up with better solutions and strategies than individuals working alone. And yet the problem with hierarchies is that that gets suppressed. So the collective intelligence, which is the basis of all organizational life, is suppressed by a lot of hierarchy, a lot of organizational methodology, like ranking of people. So it's, a, it's not a trivial problem to solve hmm. in organizational life. You know, a lot of people point to Steve Jobs as an example of a leader who was uh, difficult to work with and was uncompromising and didn't like to be challenged. But that's actually – I don't believe that's true. No. Um, and I think that is the mark of great leaders, that they need to be challenged. And they need people around them who are comfortable doing that. I completely agree with you. And actually one of the things that's really interesting in Jobs' career is that he does his best work when he has people like that. So at the very beginning of Apple, you know, he has people like Wozniak. Mm -hmm. When he is on his own at Next and he doesn't, he does less well. Yes. I think there's a cartoon version of Steve Jobs where he knows everything and every call he makes is brilliant. And then there's the much more realistic 
image of Jobs, which is it was hard for him to find the people who would stand up to him, but he really needed them and was able to encourage and not just tolerate them, but use the challenge that they brought. Margaret, how does a leader cultivate that culture? You know, I mean, let's say you've got you're a leader of an organization, big or small, and you want your team to challenge you. What do you do? How do you cultivate that? I think the way you cultivate it is a doing it in public mm. because however many times you say I'll never shoot the messenger, nobody will believe you. They've mostly had no experience of it and they may have had exactly the opposite experience, right? So they have to see that it's true. And when I was running my tech companies, I often brought to a new company some people who'd worked with me in the old company because these were people who I trusted to do that. And it was generally by watching other people challenge me and discovering that they didn't get shot that other people learned, actually, this is okay. And actually, this is what gets Margaret's attention. And it can't be a stupid, perverse challenge, but if it's an informed, intelligent challenge, then that's really useful. And actually, if the challenge is better than the proposal, I'm very happy to change my mind because, I mean, especially in technology, we're all learning. You know, certainly at the time that I was working, we used to say, you know, there are no footsteps in the sand. But what that means is you can very easily be walking in the wrong direction. And the sooner somebody says so, the better off you're going to be. Today, I'm speaking with entrepreneur and business leadership author Margaret Heffernan. And one of the things Margaret's written a lot about drawing on her own management experience is the idea that incentivizing collaboration within organizations is almost always more effective than rewarding competition. Yeah, I mean, it's very clear, and there's a gigantic kind of history of this, that you solve problems when you bring together people who are very different from each other and who really know and trust each other. Hmm. I think what's so interesting is that people don't really understand that collaboration requires more finesse than just putting a bunch of people in a room together. It doesn't just mean we've got six people on the problem instead of one. Yeah. For collaboration really to deliver its rewards, you have to have different kinds of people who are allowed to invest time in getting to know each other and who can really share an ambition for the project rather than just for themselves. But very often you have companies where actually there's a deep sense that, well, if you do well, you'll make me look smaller, mm. that it is a zero-sum game. That creates a culture in which it's impossible really to get the benefits of collaboration. So so how do you think organizations can encourage that that kind of culture? Well, it's a really hard muscle to develop. And like most muscles, it takes quite a lot of practice and a lot of self-monitoring in terms of noticing when is my competitive instinct going to get in my own way? At what point is my snappy response or my kind of put down, or my distancing from somebody who may be better at something than I am. 
at what point is that actually harming me? Mm. And, um, you know, I've, I've done this talk about super chickens and yes. how, you know, and very— tell, tell this story because this is, this is the, okay. will, the William Muir uh, research, right? Yeah. So the super chicken story, which is what it's come to be known as, is about <laughs> an evolutionary biologist at Purdue University really wanted to understand productivity. And he studied chickens. And so he did a very simple, very beautiful experiment where he put an averagely productive flock of very healthy chickens to one side in his sort of farmyard laboratory and let them do whatever chickens do all day long for six generations. But then he specially designed a, a different flock of the individually most productive chickens. So you, you could say he selected the super chickens to construct a super flock. And with each generation, he selected the most productive for breeding. Mm. And at the end of the six generations, of course, the whole gist of the experiment was to compare them. Well, the average flock was now more productive than ever before, and all the chickens were really healthy and plump and fully feathered and happy. Uh, the super flock was a completely different story because all but three were dead. <laughs> and These are the best he, performing chickens, but they that's right. They killed and each they, other. They killed each other. <laughs> And, and Mio's conclusion was that the productivity of the few had been achieved by suppressing the productivity of the rest. Yeah. And we see this everywhere. You know, this sense that, well, if you do well, I lose something. And I think, to be honest, we all have a little bit of super chicken in us. Yeah. And I notice it in myself sometimes. And noticing it, you know, allows me to restrain it. But at work, of course, there are lots of external pressures that kind of keep rousing the inner super chicken, if you like. Competition for promotion, competition for projects, competition for bonuses, uh, forced ranking, that kind of thing. And what it does is it means that for me to contribute to the whole generously feels like self-sacrifice. Yeah. And very few people are up for that. Yeah. But the research and the evidence is clear that collaborative organizations function better. That, that you know, was, I, I, I remember I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was a, an incredible chef. He was telling me about his early days working in kitchens where other cooks would literally sabotage your work. You know, they would they would throw more salt in your in your sauce or when you were looking or, yeah. you know, um, and that to me is not a failure of individuals. It's a failure of of management. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And I've heard very similar stories from some of my friends who work in advertising, you know, that very often ad agencies will put three teams together to come up with separate pitches for a client. And those three teams will try to subvert each other. You know, they'll steal each other's materials or they won't, crucially, they won't share information, which might help the other team in the kind of design that they're doing. And, of course, this becomes perverse because it may mean that the agency as a whole doesn't win the pitch. So, and now everybody's lost because nobody wants anybody else to win. And so... You know, this focus of on individualism rather than the good of the whole department or the good of the whole company, you know, this becomes 
a very big problem. And it's one reason why I think we've seen a little bit more emphasis on purpose, mm. people talking about the North Star and so on. It's also why we've seen a little bit more realistic conversation about employee ownership. Yeah. Because certainly some of the most collaborative organizations that I know and have worked with and written about are ones where people understand, well, actually, if we win this pitch, since we all own the company, it doesn't really matter who, because we all share in the success of it. And I think this is quite important that you have to think about structurally, what is the organization doing to amp up collaboration and to make people understand that to the degree they help each other and share information, everybody wins. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. It's very hard to do, right? So yes. if you want to create a collaborative environment where one doesn't exist, where competition has been rewarded, how do you begin to make that transition? Well, I certainly think that how you reward people is really crucial. I certainly think having a stake in the business helps people think that way. I think what's also very striking is that when you have one or two people in leadership positions who are clearly generous, trustworthy, good at calling out the success and achievement of others, that can be very contagious. And most crucial of all, I think, is just a sense that, you know, the company isn't a war zone. You don't go into work every day for a fight for survival. And it's been really striking to me watching the enormous cultural change, for example, in Microsoft um, since Satya Nadella became CEO. Mm. Prior to that, you had two deeply, deeply, deeply competitive human beings. And I'm not saying Nadella isn't competitive. Right. But you know, I knew a lot, I, I mean, I worked with Microsoft. I knew a lot of people in those earlier days. And there was a sort of sense that, you know, your triumph is my loss and I'm going to get you for it. Mm. And the consequence of that became kind of painfully obvious. I mean, you know, when Netscape went public, Microsoft didn't even have a browser in development. How could they have missed the internet? 
Right? They never developed really robust database technology, although the whole of the internet runs on databases. They came late to mobile, they came late to games. You know, and so these were really big, important misses for the most important software company in the world. And a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was attributable to the fact that people would not share ideas. <laughs> and I think what's been really stunning is how profoundly the culture of Microsoft has changed. And I think what's been so impressive is it wasn't just a thin, let's all be nice to each other kind of strategy. It was a very deep working through of if we orient ourselves differently to the world and to each other, what benefits derive from that. And I think the incredible success of Microsoft in the last five years has a huge lesson in it for the companies that could dare to pay attention. I feel like there, there's been a theme in your work, which is that you've been writing about themes that were probably 5 to 10 to 15 years ahead of their time and are now. <laughs> so so you, were, you were sort of predicting the future, um, um, you know, 20 years ago. And then I guess it made sense for you to write a book about <laughs> navigating the future, which is your new book called Uncharted. Um, and I guess, I, I mean – I don't want to speak speak for you, but it basically you open the book by saying that we are obsessed with trying to predict the future, and the way we think you can predict the future is actually wrong. Yeah, and it's um, I think there are lots and lots of reasons that we think about the future incorrectly. One is we have this mantra that history repeats itself. Yeah. And it really doesn't. And you only have to talk to a serious historian to learn this. What we do when we look at history is we are drawn to the similarities, but it's actually the differences that matter. Mm. Beautiful example of this was, you know, during um, the so-called Arab Spring, when Americans and Europeans looked at this as being like the Prague Spring, like the for fall, example. Or the fall of the Berlin Wall or something. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, so this was, you know, the dawn of democracy. Yeah. So they were very drawn to their own kind of favorite myths or historical events, ideologically kind of sympathetic events. I mean, it was a deeply, deeply misleading analogy. And in particular, calling it the Arab Spring blinded people to the degree to which in each country something very different was happening. Tunisia was not Egypt, which was not Libya, which was not Syria. And it is a fantastic failure of foreign policy to have been so drawn by an analogy. Um, forecasters you know, have do their best, but... Models, of course, let us down because models are simplified views of the universe. But as Paul Krugman once said, you know, often what gets left out of models is more important than what's in them. And so, again, the issue of willful blindness comes up because models mm -hmm. are based on the working assumptions, which, of course, are drawn from the past. And this is as true of economic models as the models on which AI work, you know, mm -hmm. which is you're dealing with a historical data set and correlating to historical patterns. But therefore, what they're not good at is change. And what is the future all about? The future is all about change. And so, so our problem in thinking about the future 
is we tend to ignore what we don't want to see. We tend to um, simplify it. And in all of that, what we blind ourselves to is the complexity and the contingencies, which really drive what will happen next. Margaret says that using data to try and predict what's going to happen in the future is a popular trend today, especially with the introduction of AI. But she argues that these predictions have in some ways become unhelpful and even problematic. So in her latest book, Uncharted, Margaret looks back to when this kind of professional forecasting started around 100 years ago with three American economists. It was at a moment in our history when all sorts of technology came together to make prediction a big business. So you had the railroads for distributing newsletters. You had the telegraph for collecting data from all over the country. And you had a sort of retail investor market that was really hungry for this sort of information. And that had not been true in the past, but suddenly, as often happens in history, all of these things come together and now forecasting can be a big business. (laughs) And so they set up businesses, they all professionalize forecasting, they all make their names as pundits in a way that we would absolutely Mm -hmm. now recognize. (laughs) They have to come out with really dramatic predictions. They compete with each other. And of course, you know, the 1929 crash comes along. This is kind of the acid test. And really, they all fail. Yeah. But I think it has lots of lessons for us in terms of why they fail, because I see exactly the same kind of circus these days, lots of pundits, lots of big dramatic headlines. And what happens is that these pundits become really in love with their models and they start to see the world through their models rather than really being open to what's changing, what's different, where's the disconfirmation. And I think that in, in our age, Part of what's happened, and I see this a lot in many of the leaders that I work with, is we have been so persuaded that everything is data, everything that can be measured, and therefore it can be analyzed, and therefore you can know. It has resulted in two things. First of all, a lot of collection of a lot of data that doesn't mean a damn thing. But secondly, more damagingly, I think, an inability to make a decision where you can't predict a successful outcome without the perfect data model to back it up. Yeah. Our obsession with data has persuaded people that, no, they can have certainty beforehand. But this is exactly the opposite of creativity. (laughs) So creativity is thinking, well, you know, I can see this and I can see that and I can see the other. I wonder what would happen if we dot, dot, dot. Mm. Trying something in the face of uncertainty to find out. That's what real innovation is about. If you say, well, we're going to do this and our data model says we're absolutely certain to succeed. Well, that is an innovation. Right? It's definitely not creativity. It's like saying you're exploring when you're going back to some place you already know intimately. Yeah. You 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 write about how I mean the fact that life is unpredictable. The future is actually unpredictable. We sort of uh, are so focused on predicting it that 
we are unwilling to experiment. And one of the remedies that you write about is obviously to experiment, but to do it to start on a small scale. And um, I love this story. You tell a story about a woman named Rebecca Hosking who um, very concerned about climate change and wanted to make a film initially to raise awareness, but that that didn't work. What, what happened to, to her? Well, I think Rebecca Hosking is a really extraordinary person who deserves to be very much uh, better known. So she was a, a cinematographer for the BBC's Natural History Unit and had seen huge sways of environmental degradation mm. and was deeply distraught by it and thought, you know, people need to know if they knew they would change the world. And so she persuaded her series editor to let her make a film about all of the garbage in the ocean. And she made a film you know, in which you could see that over and over and over again and absolutely had no response whatsoever. <laughs> and she retired to the little village where she had grown up and, you know, deeply despondent. If people could see it and do nothing, you know, how on earth do you get to people? And in the end, she thought, well, okay, I tried the big thing. What else could I try? And she thought, well, instead of trying to change the world, why don't I try and change my village? You know? hmm. And so she persuaded all of the shopkeepers in the village to go plastic-free. So no plastic bags, no plastic wrappings. And they did this overnight. And it was, you know, it was just apparently just quite a nice little, mm-hmm. you know, local thing. Yeah. And pretty much the next day, she woke up to find the world's media at her doorstep. Wow. There were crews um, from the BBC, from CNN, from Chinese news, from all over the world. And, you know, ever since that tiny, tiny, tiny experiment, country after country after country has changed their policy on the use of plastics and continues to do so. Now, what I love about the story is that if you were interested in prediction, you would have predicted that the film would make a huge impact and you would have thought that, you know, changing shopping habits in Modbury in Devon, England, would have had no impact and you would have been 100% wrong. Mm. And in a complex situation, which, of course, climate change is, And in a period of uncertainty, which we now live in, the things that are really going to make an impact, I think, often are very unpredictable. Yeah. And what you have to be prepared to do is experiment. You know, what I I love about this book is that essentially what you're saying is, look, don't try to predict the future through data because it's, it's just going to stifle creativity. It's going to hold you back. And that in order to navigate the future, you have to understand the environment around you. And one of the things you, you write about is a concept you call scenarios. What are, what are scenarios? How do they work? So scenario planning is a process developed in the 1970s, really, as a way of capturing uncertainty within the world. So they were really developed by a very idiosyncratic uh, executive at Shell named Pierre Wack, Hmm. um, who saw that planning was then, as it is in most places, really headquartered in finance. And he thought that it was blind to a lot of very fundamental changes in the world and that it didn't reflect the complexity of the environment in which business was being done. Hmm. 
And so he devised a process by which huge amounts of insight, information, experience are captured from a very, very broad diversity of people in order to be able to create a range of scenarios as to what the possibilities were. And the point was not to pick one because nobody's in charge of the future. The point was to look at each one of these narratives and say, okay, if the future turned out to be like this, what would we do? With the result that it would highlight all kinds of possibilities that weren't really very visible otherwise. Hmm. And in in one of the most famous examples, one of the scenarios asked the question, what would happen if the oil price fell? Now, this was during the rise of OPEC, and everybody laughed at him, saying, well, that's just stupid. That's obviously not going to happen. He said, okay, fair enough. Let's think about it. Just Let's just play the game. And they came up with a whole bunch of initiatives. And then they looked at them and said, huh, those are actually really good ideas. We should do those anyway. They just make us a better company. And then when the oil price did fall, Shell went from being a very minor player to being a super major. I mean, absolutely made the company's fortunes. Now, I'm not a big apologist for fossil fuel companies (laughs) these days, but the gist of the story is the important thing, which is the process illuminated opportunities that would not have been seen otherwise. Margaret, I I love this chapter you wrote about artists, and and I wonder if you can explain what it is that artists do that prepares them to better navigate the future? Well, I'm so glad you chose that because um, I've had the great privilege to work with some really outstanding artists in my life. And I've been very fascinated watching how they work. And my observation is that prediction has nothing to do with it. You know, they certainly don't set out thinking, what is the painting I can paint that will make me world famous. This is not their game. Mostly what they do is they wander around a lot. And what they're doing is they're just noticing. They're just picking up stuff. And they're kind of sifting through it, thinking, what's in here? You know, what's are there some, some magnets around which these iron filings might collect? And sooner or later, usually later, <laughs> some theme or idea or concept will coalesce. And then they'll start working on it. And at the moment that they start working on it, they do not know what it will be. Hmm. Lots of painters who say, I don't know what the picture is. The only way I know how to paint it is to start. Yeah, It's all about the emergent properties of creativity. And I think these are what we need now absolutely more than ever. So it's distressing that, you know, we have a lot of technology and a lot of educational systems which want us to go in exactly the opposite direction and only do as what we're told and only do what's predictable. You know, I had a fantasy when I was writing Uncharted. I was standing on a railway, uh, in a railway station waiting for my train and thinking, imagine, so I know the train's going to come. It's Britain, of course it's going to come. Yeah, (laughs) and it's, you know, and so I've got, I don't know, five minutes of downtime or whatever. And I thought, well, imagine if this was true of my whole life. Yeah. 
if I knew every single thing that was going to happen to me from now till the day I died. So that would be 100% certainty. It would be completely pointless. And so while I think we imagine we would like that degree of certainty, in fact, it's uncertainty which makes us and which makes life interesting. Yeah. Uncertainty is what provokes our imagination and creativity, and it's absolutely at the heart of being human. That's Margaret Heffernan. Her new book is called Uncharted. By the way, even before her successful career in tech and business, Margaret worked on everything from a 13-part documentary on the French Revolution to music videos for Virgin Records. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built-It Productions. <laughs>